Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 169 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Andy Weir, author of the best-selling science fiction novel The Martian about an astronaut stranded on Mars who must use his knowledge of science to survive long enough to be rescued. The story began as a free serial on Andy's website, and when he uploaded the book to Amazon.com, The Martian quickly shot up the charts, where it attracted the interest of an editor from Crown. The Martian is now available in bookstores everywhere, and a big-budget movie adaptation hits theaters October 2nd. And now, here's our interview with Andy Weir. All right, so we're here with Andy Weir. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, so first off, just tell us about how you got interested in reading science fiction. Well, um, I, I think I was doomed to be a nerd because my father is a particle physicist and my mother was an electrical engineer. And so um, I was pretty much uh, on that course from day one. My dad had an infinite supply of old 1950s and 60s sci-fi novels, um, which he had read growing up. And so I had access to them. And that's what I would read. So it's kind of interesting in that I, I the the sci-fi that I read when when I was growing up was uh, was like kind of one generation off of what you'd expect for for my age. It's like I, I grew up reading baby boomer sci-fi, and uh, so my holy trinity of authors, the ones that I really look up to and aspire to be like, are are uh, Asimov, Clark, and Heinlein. Well, speaking of Heinlein, I was kind of wondering if you had ever read his novel Tunnel in the Sky. Oh yes, oh yes. That's one of my. It is one of my very favorite uh, Heinlein novels. You know, I love a good man versus nature story. Yeah, it seems like it would be your sort of thing. Oh, absolutely! It's a fantastic novel. You, you know something interesting about that book? The main character. Uh, so he, I, I don't know exactly when it was written. It was sometime in, I want to say the early 1950s, maybe. Um. Anyway, uh, the main character of that story is black. Heinlein made that decision. He wanted him to be black. But uh, at the time, it's like the sort of thing where if he'd overtly stated it, like at that era, if he'd overtly stated, oh, the protagonist is black, then it, the book would have been classified as like, you know, oh, we'll just sell it to black people and stuff like that. And, and he didn't want that, right? So he was just really, really subtle. But he dropped like three or four clues here and there in the book that you can then back calculate to figure out, oh, the main, the protagonist is black. So he was uh, pretty forward-thinking for his time and managed to outmaneuver the uh, the publishers and marketers to get it to market. <laughs> huh, that's really interesting. I mean, for people who haven't read it, the premise is that there are these kids and they're sent to survive for a week, I think, on an alien planet, and then there's a disaster and they end up getting stranded there long-term. So that's why I think that it seems like Andy's sort of thing. Yep, yep, absolutely. <laughs> and so then uh, how did you start writing your own fiction? Uh, I just always loved, like, I, I, I don't know. I just, uh, I don't remember a time when I wasn't writing silly fiction. Like, I, I, I wrote short stories when I was, like, 12. <laughs> um, so I, I don't, I, I can't think of a specific time when I, you know, quote-unquote, got my start on that. Uh, but in college, you wrote, a, you wrote your first novel, right? <laughs> yeah, if you can call it that. <laughs> it's a, it was pretty bad. Um but I think everybody's first novel is pretty bad. Uh, it, it, it was just uh, it was kind of a dystopian future thing. And uh, I don't know. It's, it, 
it's embarrassingly bad. The, the good news is I wrote it before the days of the Internet, so um, I, I never had the opportunity to post it online, which means it's not out there for anyone to find. <laughs> no one will ever know. <laughs> but so, th so then, yes, yeah, so that was college. And then talk about what happened to you after college and what happened with your writing. Well, um, I, I did college. Uh, I, I went to college to be a software engineer. And I, I, I spent a total in my life of 25 years as a computer programmer. Um, but that's like, I, I just quit my day job about a year and a half ago to go full-time on the writing. And I did that once it was clear that the Martian could financially support me. But I wasn't willing to take the, the kind of financial risk of uh, uh, being a full-time writer. I, I, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's a, it's a pretty risky proposition. So I, um, when I was working at AOL back around 1999, I was working for AOL, and they laid me off along with 800 other people when um, when they merged with Netscape, which kind of shows you how long ago that was. And um, I had a really good severance package, plus I had a bunch of stock options, and I, I was forced to sell the stock options because they would, you know, when you're laid off, you have 60 days to sell your stock options, or they just fizzle, they disappear. So I was forced to sell them at what turned out to be the peak, like almost... almost AOL's all-time peak. <laughs> so I ended up with a bunch of money, and I assure you I would not have made a wise financial decision with my own devices, but I ended up doing that just out of pure luck. And so I ended up with a bunch of money, and I was like, hey, I can go a few years without having to work, so I'm going to take my shot at being a full-time writer. And so I wrote another book. Uh, this, the second book was called Theft of Pride, and it was sort of a space opera kind of book. I mean, it has, you know, Lots of alien races that all, for some reason, are comfortable in each other's atmospheres, and you know the the, the kind of Star Trek, Star Wars kind of feel to it. And it was really a heist novel. It was about a uh, a thief trying to steal a national treasure of this planet. And um, I thought actually the story of that book is fairly solid. I think it's actually a pretty good story. But the wordsmithing, the prose, the just the skill of writing or lack thereof was the problem. So it also wasn't that good, but it was certainly a lot better than my first effort. And um, I, I spent three years, well, first I wrote it and then I tried to get it published. I, I said, like, I want to break into the industry. And uh, I had the, the standard sob story that every, you know, struggling author has. I, you know, just couldn't get any traction. No one was, no one was interested in it. Uh, couldn't get an agent, uh, couldn't even get responses from publishers. The nice agents were the ones who sent me rejection letters, right? Hmm. Um, and so after three years, I gave up, and I, uh, I just um, I went back to uh, computer programming. And this wasn't a huge defeat for me because, like, I, I like programming computers. It's, it's, it's a job and a career that I enjoy. It wasn't like, oh, I'm some poor cubicle dweller who hates his life. No, I, I really like it. I like it's a challenging career. It, it, it keeps my, it keeps me mentally active. I, I, I enjoy it. I usually, I, I get along great with my coworkers pretty much everywhere I've ever worked. So it, it wasn't like this huge defeat for me is all I'm saying. Uh, I, I was going to say, I know that you worked at Blizzard somewhere. Was that in, was that at that time there? Uh, no, I worked at Blizzard before AOL. I worked at Blizzard in 1995. I was uh, one of the, one of the programmers on Warcraft two. Okay. I was kind of curious to ask you about that because I, I played a lot of Warcraft 2 back in the day. Well, I'm glad I could help burn thousands of hours of your life that 
might have otherwise been productive. <laughs> well, actually, speaking, there's a funny story because when I was in college, my roommate got addicted to playing Warcraft 2 on my computer. And one night he was supposed to go out on a date. And I went out and I came back and I'm approaching our room and I can hear, we move, we move. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. We move. And I, like, I was like, wow, he's back early. I guess the date didn't last very long. But then he had actually brought the girl back to our room to watch him play Warcraft 2 because he couldn't stand to be away from it for that long. So Wow. <laughs> okay, so that, that can go one of two ways, right? <laughs> if, uh, if she's into Warcraft 2, then that can go really well. If she's not, it's like the worst date in history. <laughs> I, I think it was more the latter, yeah. More the latter. <laughs> well, that's unfortunate. <laughs> But so, uh, do you have? Any, I was just curious if you had any stories from your time at Blizzard or any memories that stand out in your mind. Um, well, actually, Blizzard was one of the most unpleasant jobs I ever had. <laughs> it was just—I uh, the, the people were cool. Most most of the people were cool. It's just the the workload was just so intense. Um, the the software industry has really calmed down a lot since its early days. But back in the day, back in the, you know, the 90s, the early 90s, mid-90s especially, that was when, I mean, <laughs> software engineers were just mistreated. Like, we, it was like, at Blizzard, if you, if you were awake, you were at work. Like, literally. <laughs> like, I, I remember uh, it was like, so working like 16 hours a day, every day, uh, and, and on weekends and holidays and everything. I remember I had this, this, this kind of reunion planned with my friends that uh, we were all going to get together and we were going to be, um, we were meeting up in San Diego. This is a uh, Blizzard's office was in Irvine. So it's a decent distance away. And we were going to hang out for the weekend, get together, drink, have some fun for a weekend. And it was just a Saturday and a Sunday. And I told them, you know, a month in advance, I told the people at Blizzard, I was like, I'm, I'm taking this weekend off next month. And I got a lot of shit for that. Like a lot of people were angry at me for not coming to work on a Saturday and a Sunday, even having given tons of uh, notice. And while I was there, they called me many, many times with questions and, and stuff like that. So, uh, I mean, the product we made was really good and I'm really proud to have been a part of it, but the working at Blizzard was just miserable. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's different now. I mean, Working at any game company in that era, or any startup in that era, and Blizzard was a startup at that time, um, was miserable. So it's not like there's, it's not Blizzard. That's just how the industry was at the time, and it was really, it was really rough. <laughs> I mean, had you gotten into that because you were super passionate about games, and did that kind of uh, affect how you felt about games? Uh, I was not super passionate about games. I mean, I like video games, but no more than I mean, I wasn't like way into them. I wasn't like, you know, like, not like your, your former roommate, <laughs> but, um, but, uh, yeah, the idea of being a game programmer was exciting to me, you know, being a, you know, kind of fresh out of college, uh, in my twenties. And the idea of working on video games is, is pretty cool. Um, and, uh, I don't know. I burnt out at Blizzard. I burnt out. Nowadays, I'm not much of a gamer. I mean, I went through a phase where I played video games. I, I guess I, I was just never really a, a big-time video gamer. Hmm. Well, so, okay, so, so sorry, I interrupted you, though, but you, you're talking about how you, you've worked for many years as a software programmer, and then you kind of got into self-publishing a little bit. Tell us about how that started. 
Well, yeah. Okay. So after, um, after three years of not being able to get my book published, I decided it's time to go back into the industry. And I went back into the industry. And then I was just working as a software engineer. But then around this time is when the internet started to really become a thing. Like, I mean, it had been around before, but now, you know, it was fairly easy to, you know, make your own website and stuff like that. So I thought, okay, here's a place where I can be, have a, you know, creative outlet. And so I made a web page and I, I would uh, do creative stuff there. I, I, I did, I made web comics. I made uh, a lot of short stories and uh, I also made serial you know, just post a chapter here and there of a, of a continuing storyline. And The Martian was just one of those serials. Right. Now, I mean, and it, like now there's a huge community of self-publishing people. But back then, were you kind of doing it on your own? Were you in, were you kind of networking with other people who are interested in that? No, I was, a, uh, well, first off, I was totally on my own. I wasn't networking with anyone. Second off, I was, I wouldn't call myself a self-publisher at that point. I was really more of just a blogger. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. I didn't have any intention of making money off of this at the at off this stuff at the time I wrote it. This was not an it was to me it was it was just a hobby and not not even remotely something that I considered a profession. And I didn't I also did not attempt to make any money off of it. Everything I posted is for free. Uh, there's no you know there's not even like a registration or anything on my site. You can just go there. It's still there. You can still go there and read <laughs> most of my stuff. Um, uh, there was no advertisements. There's no donation button. Nothing, um, because it's just my hobby. That's uh, what I really wanted. The thing that I wanted to get out of it all was an audience. I wanted people to read my stuff, you know. And I think that's I think that's pretty common among writers. Our our main motivation is to 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 know that other people are so that people are reading your stuff, right? I mean. I'm sure that's one of your motivations with your podcast, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Um, but as I understand it, one of the things that really first took off for you was this short story you wrote called The Egg. Tell us about how that came about. Yes, that was probably my first real success in writing. And, and uh, well, okay. Uh, yeah, that was my first success in narrative fiction. In other words, just like words on a page. I had a web, com my web comic called Casey and Andy actually got fairly popular. Um, but yeah, The Egg was like my first real success in terms of like writing and it was just it's kind of funny it was just a story that i that i banged out in 40 minutes i just wrote it one day and posted it to my site just like many other short stories i do and i i didn't really think it, it was special in any way i didn't think much of it i thought okay well whatever this is just a thing i wrote that i posted but it got really really popular and i think the reason for its popularity is First off, it's got kind of a cool plot twist at the end, and people think that, and people like that. Um, second off, it's the whole thing is only like fifteen hundred words. Oh no, sorry, a thousand words long. It's about a page and a half. The whole the whole story, and so that's that's a really good digestible size for the modern kind of internet audience, right? That's like about as much attention span as people are willing to put into a link their friends randomly send them, right? Um, and it's also like small enough that people could just copy and paste the entire content into their blog. But anyway, yeah, that was really popular and it helped a lot because, um, I have a mailing list and, um, you know, so people can sign up for my mailing list and then I send them, I, I would send updates whenever I posted new content to my site. And over 10 years, I, I slowly accumulated readers and a lot of the readers came from that one period of time right after the egg. 
So it brought a lot of readers to my site, and then some of them became like permanent regular readers, and that was cool. Mm -hmm. This is interesting to me because, you know, my girlfriend has written, they call it flash fiction, these really short thousand word around that stories. And she's writing a bunch of these, and she's always agonizing about where to send them or what to do with them. And I've always been telling her, oh, don't worry about it too much. You know, nobody gets famous writing thousand word stories. But then I read your, you know, but like, oh, well, Andy Weir does get that famous writing thousand word stories. So do you think that that's it's a good. <laughs> I mean, is that something that you would recommend writers do write short, like flash fiction like that and hope it goes viral on the Internet? Or is that so much of a fluke that it's not a really good way of directing your energy? I think it was a fluke, although um, what I would recommend to any writer is write whatever you're willing to write. Like the hardest thing for a writer is the actual like buckling down and doing the work. And so whatever it is that you are passionate about and inspired enough to actually do the work on, that's what you should write about because it'll probably be pretty good because you're so passionate about it. You'll put so much like automatic effort and thought into it that it'll be good. I think uh, flash fiction is, I mean, so when you're talking about like really, really short style, like a thousand words, yeah, I don't know that many people who've got popular off of it. And neither did I, by the way. It's like, I'm, it's really the Martian that put me into the publishing world, not the egg. The egg became like a meme for a while and uh, got me a lot of regular readers. And that was great, but it's, it, it, it wasn't really the launching off point for me. It was the Martian, which is a full length novel that, that really, that really got me going. Although I should point out that um, novellas are uh, increasingly becoming a good way of breaking it, self-published novellas, because self-publishing now is digital, so you don't need like a 250-page book. You can say like, well, here's a 50-page novella, and I don't charge very much for it. So you don't have to pay much, and you're also not getting much content, but it didn't take (laughs) you very long to write. And so a good example of that is Hugh Howey, who wrote the, who writes the silo stuff, uh, Wool is his most well-known book. Um, and that's how he started. He, he wrote novellas. Like the book that we call Wool is actually five different novellas that he released at different times. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So, so you mentioned the Martian. And so tell us about writing the Martian because it seems like, I don't know, w- w- would the Martian have come about? if not for the egg? Because it seems like the audience that you built up from writing the egg played such an integral role in the composition of The Martian. It did, and it didn't. Um, so, I mean, I had, a lot of, uh, I had a lot of those regular readers already, but I did build up more readers for The Egg, and th- that, that core group of readers is what kind of started a, the word-of-mouth uh, stuff on The Martian. So I'm sure it, it mattered a lot. I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I honestly don't know what would have happened in a parallel universe where I wrote The Martian but never wrote The Egg. Well, but also, I mean, you had all these people giving you scientific feedback. So, so you had this idea that I think went back to 2002 or something about a, a guy stranded on Mars. Um, and then so you start serializing it on your website. And then you start getting all this feedback from chemists and physicists and things. I think that's so interesting. Yeah, Um However, uh, that, that's true. And getting that feedback was great because uh, they would tell me places where I was wrong and then I'd go correct it and stuff like that. Um, oh, and for the record, I, I think I first got the idea for The Martian around 2005 and I first started writing it in 2009 just to have that because you said 2002 and that's not, not quite right. Okay, let the record stay. It was 2005. Yes, uh, 2005 is when I came up with the idea. And then 2009 is when I, I think I posted the first chapter. 
So um, then, uh, yes, so the scientists that I had as regular readers, I didn't pick them up from the egg. I actually picked them up mostly from a webcomic that I'd written starting in like around 2000 called Casey and Andy. And I did that webcomic for a long time. I made a two or three strips a week, every week for years and years and years. There were 666 strips by the end. And so the last, the last one was number 666. So that was like uh, many years of work. And it was a science dork based comic. Like the plots all revolved around like these two mad scientists and stuff. And so the technical people who were my regular readers that, that gave me feedback on The Martian, I think I had mostly accumulated them through Casey and Andy. That's interesting, because another thing that really strikes me about The Martian is that you expected this to only appeal to a really niche audience of hardcore science geeks. Yeah, those those guys, the guys that I picked up, those science geeks, were I was writing it for them. <laughs> And I think you, you can really see that, too, in the book, because it's just so heavy in the science. But it turns out that it has this mass appeal. Has that, uh, has that renewed your faith in humanity that so many people are interested <laughs> well, in this kind of story? I, 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 I don't define humanity's values by their interest in science. <laughs> but uh, uh, I, what, it, what it did was baffle me. I, I, I was just really surprised that so many people took an interest in my story um, when, when I, I thought I was writing for hardcore science dorks. And I guess what I learned is that, um, I, so I made the character, uh, the main character, Mark Watney, I made him a smart ass and kind of flippant and, and he cracks a lot of jokes. And the reason I did that was because I needed, I knew he was going to be uh, explaining a lot of science to the readers. He was going to have to, there's just going to be a ton of exposition in the story. And if I didn't want it to read like a Wikipedia article, I, I would need it. I, I needed to present it in a funny way. I, I would need to tell the story, you know, funny. And um, so I made him a smart ass. And I guess people really, really liked the humor in the book. And for the folks who aren't that interested in science, uh, they would, I, I've learned since then, I didn't know this at the time, I've learned that when they're reading the book, they just kind of skim over the parts where it's describing the science in detail. And they're just like, yeah, I'm going to take the author's word for it that this works out, <laughs> which is actually pretty cool because it means that at some point earlier in the book, I must have established a level of trust with the reader where the reader just assumes that the stuff I'm telling them is accurate and, and factual. And, and that's, that's a big deal for a writer to get that, the reader's trust to that level where they just accept what you say without question. That's, that's a big hit. And so um, I, I, I accidentally bungled into mass appeal by making a smart-ass character that's an everyman. I think that's what happened. That's, I'm not sure. Well, no, and th this book does have a tremendous amount of authority to it. I mean, even to someone like me, I mean, it, it feels very, very real. But even I've heard people like Chris Hatfield, the commander of the International Space Station, says this just feels very right to him. Every, you know, the, the science and the way the astronauts act and the way the NASA administrators act, you just somehow got it all really, really, you depicted it all really, really accurately. Yeah, thanks. I, I mean, I put a huge amount of work into the science. And that's, I, I enjoy research, and I, so that's, that's, and I've been a lifelong space nerd, so that stuff's really easy for me. When it comes to personalities, I didn't know anyone in aerospace at the time that I wrote it, so uh, I was just kind of guessing at the personalities, 
But for astronauts, I based it off of just basically like personalities of astronauts that I'd seen on documentaries and stuff and, and interviews. And so I said like, well, I kind of have a feel for what astronauts are like, sort of. And then uh, as for NASA's administration and, and like how, how people at NASA interact, I had spent earlier in life, I'd worked for uh, a, a national laboratory, Sandia National Labs in Livermore. And I spent uh, many years working there. Like I started when I was 15, just basically like lab assistant stuff. Um, and I saw how it, it is a large federally funded research facility. So I, I, I kind of projected that onto NASA because I didn't know anything about NASA itself. But I figured, well, they're a large federally funded research facility, right? So they'll probably be similar to Sandia. And it turns out that was right. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty cool. Like I, when I went to NASA and visited them and they were, they were uh, I went to Johnson Space Center and they gave me a bunch of tours and it was awesome. One of the best weeks of my life. Uh, they said, like, uh, the, the director of Johnson Space Center, Dr. Ellen Ochoa, a four-time astronaut, um, said, like, yeah, you, you absolutely, like, for every NASA character, every personality type, every character at NASA that you have in the book, I could point to someone in the real organization and say, that guy has that exact personality. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So how, what other um, feedback are you getting on the book from, from uh, do you get like letters from kids saying they want to be astronauts now? Or are they just like fan letters that really strike you? Yeah, lots of fan mail um, and, uh, you know, from kids and teens and adults alike. The ones that I, I really like are the ones that start with, I don't usually read science fiction, but, or I don't usually like science fiction, but, you know, that makes me feel good because that means that I'm, I'm like getting, I'm, I'm snagging people who generally aren't interested in science at all. And there was one thing that I thought was super sweet was, um, there was a woman sent me a picture of her daughter who was dressed up in astronaut clothes and said that she's going to be like Commander Lewis for, uh, for Halloween. <laughs> and this is before the movie. This is like last year, you know. And um, and so it's pretty neat that like just like I wasn't making any sort of like feminist statement or anything like that. I just kind of arbitrarily decided that the that the commander of the mission would be a woman. But this, if it inspires little girls to say like, "Hey, I want to be an astronaut," then that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there there was a video I saw online where it was Elon Musk critiquing the Martian and then it was intercut with you responding to it. Could you tell us about <laughs> yeah. that? Yeah. Um, it was uh, it, there, there had been an interview with Elon Musk where he commented on the Martian in a few places and then they had me respond to his comments. He wasn't talking to me. You know, he wasn't his original comments were not directed at me. He was just answering questions to an interviewer. They just uh, had me respond to his comments. Yeah. Well, I thought, I mean, one of his comments was that he thought it might make people scared to go to Mars because the <laughs> book is so scary that, you know, he, he thought maybe you should have written a book where they all go to, they have a nice vacation on Mars and everyone has a really nice time or something. I don't think that would be quite as popular. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I don't think anyone's under, uh, I, I don't think it would scare people away from Mars. I, I don't think anyone, uh, anybody's under the illusion that going to Mars would be, you know, safe, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> people understand that space travel and especially something like an interplanetary mission is going to be, especially in the early days, is going to be inherently dangerous. Right. Well, and there are a lot of dangers to Mars that you even had trouble uh, dealing with in the book, right? Like the radiation. Yeah. And uh, I mean, 
I, I don't do you, do you want to talk about some of the the criticisms of the book? Like, what do you think have been some of the more valid criticisms? Well, the mo- the biggest um, departure, the biggest deviance from reality in the book is the force of the sandstorm. At the uh, beginning of the novel, um, our protagonist is stranded as a result of a sandstorm on Mars that damaged their equipment, forced them aboard, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, in reality, Mars' atmosphere is so thin that while it does get 150 kilometer an hour wind, that the inertia of that wind with that super thin atmosphere is too little to do anything. It would feel like a gentle breeze on Earth. It just got no force behind it. So um, I knew that at the time that I wrote the story. I, I knew that Martian sandstorms couldn't do that much damage. And I did have an alternate beginning in mind where they do an MAV engine test and, this, and it causes a problem and there's like, it causes, they're starting to leak fuel and so they have to launch before their fuel leaks out and, and so on. And I, I have this alternate Thing that would be completely accurate to physics. But first off, it wasn't nearly as exciting or interesting. And second off, this is a man versus nature story, so I wanted nature to get the first punch. I didn't want it to be based on, like, a mechanical failure. I wanted it to be, like, um, I don't know. It, it, I guess just what I said. I wanted nature to be the initial cause. Now, what's too bad is that, like, since then, long long after the book came out and after well, they'd already made the movie and it was in post-production and stuff like that, I talked to a, a guy at NASA and he said, most people don't know this, but Mars has lightning. Like, Mars has, like, weather patterns and lightning and stuff. And I'm like, ah, oh, see a lightning strike. That <laughs> could have been pretty cool. Because then it'd be nature initiating the problem, right? Yeah. Oh, well. But to, to it. <laughs> um, the other thing I did was uh, radiation was I, I hand waved around it. Now, a lot of people critique the story by saying like, oh, he didn't account for radiation. I disagree. I did account for radiation. I accounted for it by inventing a bullshit technology that doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> so within the context of the book, at some point between now and the 20 years from now when that Mars mission takes place, they have invented a material that's thin, flexible, and and has a dramatic radiation reduction. No such material exists. Nothing remotely like it exists. So unlike the other technologies shown in the book, which are either real-world tech or reasonable and expected improvements on real-world tech, like the ion engines Hermes has, are more powerful than any that have ever been made, but we know how to do it. You just make them bigger, right? <laughs> um, uh, this tech, this radiation-absorbing uh, shielding, there's nothing remotely like it. I was going to say, now maybe some kid will invent it because he read about it in The Martian. Hey, good. <laughs> <laughs> Although I think I, I, I'm sure there are, there's a lot more than some kid working on it. There's a, the radiation is actually one of the biggest problems for uh, interplanetary travel, and they don't really have a good answer to it yet. As it is, the only solution they have is um, it requires, you, you just need a whole lot of mass. You just need to put up like, a bunch of water is actually pretty good at blocking radiation. So if you have like 10 centimeters of water between you and the outside, then, then that's pretty good. And so you say, oh, store the crew's water supply in the hull kind of thing. Problem is, it's like, first off, way the hell more water than the crew needs. So a lot of it hmm. is just ends up being kind of dead weight. And second off, uh, it's just an enormous amount of mass. <laughs> it's huge. You'd have like as much... You have more mass dedicated to radiation shielding than you have dedicated to the rest of the ship. It's it's a real problem that they need to solve. Well, fortunately, it's come out that there's lots of water on Mars, right? So yeah, maybe that'll there help. There is. Out. Well, no. So when you're on Mars, 
Actually, the biggest problem is the interstellar travel, interstellar, uh, interplanetary travel. Um, while you're on your way to Mars and back, that's the real problem of radiation. When you're on Mars, you have a lot of options. First off, uh, so most of the radiation, that most of the problems come from uh, not the sun. The sun is part of it, but these things called GCRs, uh, which stands for galactic cosmic rays, which is a really bad name because they're not cosmic rays. They're actually particles. And so there are these very, there are these relativistic moving particles that have just been generated by the galaxy and they're passing through our solar system. And they're, they're what causes the radiation issue or a large part of it. The sun is easy to block. You can just put something between you and the sun, but the GCRs come from all directions uniformly. And that's a problem. Um, when you're on Mars, you have two huge advantages. First off, Mars itself is blocking half of the GCRs, right? Every, everything below the horizon is being blocked by this big old planet between you and any particles trying to get at you. Um, and the second huge advantage is with Mars is like, okay, you set up your base and then you just cover it with like a meter of Martian soil. Like a, a meter of sand or rock or, or Martian regolith, as it's called, would, would protect you from, from uh, the radiation just fine. So there's plenty of resources to be had on Mars to take care of the problem. The real problem is in space. So, it, you know, they're, they're spending months and months in a spacecraft, and it's just being constantly bombarded with these um, high-energy particles. And the, uh, the crew would get radiate, uh, would basically, their cancer risk would just go up and up and up and up. Hmm. What do you think about the way that other, like, previous science fiction novels have dealt with Mars? Are there any that you're particularly fond of? Uh, yeah, one of them I really like a lot was Ben Bova's Mars. The title is just Mars by Ben Bova. And I liked it because it was, uh, it had a lot of, uh, accurate science in it. It had some hand wavy stuff too. But the thing I really liked about it was, and, and I won't give away the twist, but, um, they, all, all the astronauts start to get sick. And, and they're all, all the people on the surface are just getting sicker and sicker. And they're wondering if they've caught some pathogen that's native to Mars or something like that. And I thought the resolution to that plot was like really, really clever. It was like when when I got to that and read read the got to that part of the book, I was like, "Oh man, that <laughs> that is awesome writing." Yeah, that's a terrific book. I was going to recommend it if you hadn't read it. It, it. it has the most science of any science fiction novel about Mars that I that I think I've read. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. Um, but how about, uh, how about movies about Mars? I thought it was interesting, you know, uh, for the Martian movie, they filmed it at a particular location and the Wikipedia article mentioned that three previous Mars movies had been filmed in the same location. And I don't think any of them broke 25% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, <laughs> well, I don't, I don't remember which other movies, uh, had been written there or have been, have, uh, which other Mars movies have, have been there. I know that, um, I know that it's so the location is Wadi Rum, Jordan. It's a it's a desert in Jordan. Uh, I know that they filmed um, Lawrence of Arabia there, but um, but I don't know uh, what what were the other Mars movies. Uh, yeah, I, I could tell you it was Red Planet, Mission to Mars, and something called Journey to Mars that I never saw. Yeah, <laughs> it really looks like Mars, so it's a great location to film those things. Um, when you're talking about Mars movies, it's kind of funny. There's what they call the Mars Curse. Right <laughs> in the movie industry, it's it, that was actually something that was uh, potentially going to be a problem in getting the Martian greenlighted. Is that uh, there has I, I think the last time there was a commercially successful movie that well or a significant commercial success 
that took place on Mars was, um, I think, uh, Total Recall. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, wow. Like uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. No, I might be wrong. There might have been some in the middle there. And it's also some things that people don't like were also commercial successes, right? I actually kind of liked um, Mission to Mars. Wait, uh, I like the one with Gary Sinise. I forget which one that is. That was Mission to Mars? Mission to Mars, okay. I didn't like the one with Val Kilmer as much. Um, but, but yeah, I, I, I'm not sure why. Um, I'm not sure. I, I think it's just like um, Mars is a big topic, right? It's not, it, all, all things that take place on Mars are not the same. Like, I'd remind you, like, The Martian and John Carter of Mars and Mars Needs Moms and Santa Claus versus the Martian all take place on Mars, right? But those movies don't, are not in any way similar, right? Um, so I, I, think, I think comparing movies that take place on Mars to each other simply because of the setting is kind of like not really that productive. It's like saying like, oh, um, you know, Cloverfield takes place in New York City, and so does the TV show Friends. Let's, let's <laughs> compare them. It's like, well... <laughs> well, well, but I think my, my issue with, with movies like Red Planet and Mission to Mars is that the astronauts don't seem to me to act like astronauts. Uh, they seem to act like uh, high school students or something who are very angry and you know, yeah, not in control of their emotions. That is one of those things that bugs me. And um, I think it comes down to, uh, yeah, that, that's always one of the most unrealistic things, in my opinion, is uh, when, when you have uh, astronauts that are just incapable of working together as a team or incapable of respecting their commander's decisions. Because in real life, that does not happen. <laughs> like, sometimes the astronauts will get a little testy with each other on, like, long-duration ISS you know, uh, stays and they'll, they'll get angry with each other and, and stuff like that. A little bit of cabin fever, but nothing like this, the complete acrimonious stuff you see in these movies. It's like, they're psychologically vetted, you know, for these missions before they, before they get sent on them. They want to make sure that exact thing doesn't happen. Right. Yeah. No, I've, I've heard you make the point that when you have like a million candidates and you're picking the top six and right. you're selecting <laughs> most of all for people who are you know, have good interpersonal skills, you know, they're not going to act like ordinary people. Right. I mean, for the most part, you, you can expect people who are on a manned Mars mission where you're going to be, you're going to have something like, well, within the context of the Martian, the, the, my fictional mission requires them to be together for a little bit over a year. And there's six of them, right? That's just, it's just the six of you, usually in fairly confined quarters, not like super cramped, not like space shuttle. And even they, they have more space than even ISS astronauts, but it's still like, you know, those six better get along. And within the story, I, I have that. I think I show that, like, the crew all get along all the time. Like, they have literally no conflicts ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and, and I mean, you, you definitely, you portray the bond between them really well, and that really makes it effective as a story. I mean... I mean, I got choked up a lot reading this book because you have the sense of people caring about each other and trying their damnedest to save each other. Yeah, well, they're, they're crewmates. And you think of them, I mean, it's not a new concept, the, um, that sort of uh, relationship among crewmates. If you just imagine, like, um, a squad at war, like soldiers, and, like, the sort of, the sort of uh, camaraderie and loyalty they have to each other is 
that'll happen with that same psychological effect happens to astronauts. They're like, we are a team. We're, they're like a family. Right. Well, and speaking of the crew, I mean, this movie has just an unbelievable cast. There's like 10 people, any of one of which could headline a movie on their own. <laughs> yeah, it's really uh, incredible. Can you just talk about how, how you ended up with so many big name stars in this movie? Yeah, um, it really kind of snowballed. Basically, Matt Damon said he was up for playing the lead. And then um, Ridley Scott said he wanted to direct. And basically, those two things happening is what caused everything else to happen. First off, it made the studio say like, oh, okay, now we're taking this project seriously. That made them much more likely to greenlight it, right? And then second off, like, uh, Ridley Scott is such a, you know, such a, a, a god in the field. Everybody wants to work with him, right? And once it was clear that this was going to be a movie that's going to be like Ridley Scott and Matt Damon, so they knew it was going to be, you know, heavily budgeted and they're going to put a lot of work into it. And like, uh, also I, I like to think maybe that the, um, that the performers really like the story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and so they all, they all wanted to be a part of it. And then they, they, it's funny because they said like, um, they had all these, like the, the agents for all these big name performers, like contacting them saying like, Oh, we're interested in the Martian. We're interested in these parts. We want to pitch my, my person for this part and so on. And the studio was like, okay, this is great, but we cannot possibly afford all of you. You know, it's like, this, these are like too many big name actors. We, we don't have the budget to pay what all of these people are worth. Right. And a lot of them just worked for less than they would usually get. Just the combination of those factors. Just they, they liked the story. They wanted to be in a Ridley Scott film. And, and, you know, another thing that helped in no small part, and this is a big deal, is scheduling. One of the biggest challenges to getting, you know, a cast together for a film is scheduling because they're busy. You know, they've got, oh, you know, he's on this project until June. She's on this project until July. And then this other guy we'd like to have doesn't fit. You need to find a period of time within the next year or so where you can get all the performers that you need. Well, The Martian, it works out pretty well because there are three extremely separated settings. There's all the stuff going on, there, there's Mark on Mars, and then there's the crew of the Hermes on Hermes, and then there's all the people at NASA. And aside from Mark and the crew being together for a few scenes, um, the entire rest of the movie is three completely distinct settings. And so that meant that they could, they could say, like, like, they filmed all the NASA scenes first, then they filmed all of, like, Matt Damon's scenes, and then, like, toward the end of the time that Matt Damon had on the pr- production, that's when they started filming uh, all the Hermes scenes, all the scenes with the crew. And so the scenes where they're together, they filmed first, and then they wrapped Matt Damon, and then they filmed the, all the Hermes scenes, you know? And so it was a lot easier scheduling because you didn't need all of the performers for, like, you know, four months. It's like, like oh, we need these people for, for, like, five weeks, and then they can all go, and then we need these people, and so on. To what degree, too, was it the people working on the movie were space nuts and they wanted to, you know, promote the space program and humanity's future in space? Was there any of that in terms of getting people involved in this movie? No, I don't think so. I I think it was all just uh, pure entertainment. Certainly that was my goal when writing the book was just to entertain, not to press any agenda. Um, And I feel like the the film, I mean, it's Hollywood, right? They make movies because they want to make money off of movies. 
<laughs> and that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, although, I mean, I did, I'm sure you saw this uh, recent Washington Post story. Andy Weir in his book, The Martian, may have saved NASA and the entire space program. Yeah, I think that's a tad overstated. <laughs> I think it's very generous. But I think, actually, um, people aren't considering what might... It, 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 people might be getting cause and effect mixed up. I think the reason, I, I think we might be in a bit of a virtuous cycle. We have, a, we have um, like space-based science fiction, like space mission-based sci-fi is becoming more popular, like The Martian and before that Interstellar and before that Gravity, right? Um, I think the public is getting more engaged with space travel. Therefore, these movies become commercial successes. I don't think these movies are driving the public interest in space travel as much as public interest in space travel is driving these movies. But either way, it's good because it means that like the public is increasing in their interest in space travel. And so more movies will come out, more, more entertainment will come out that revolves around it. And then that'll drive off the public. And so they'll feed off of each other. But I, I don't. I don't think my book is responsible for saving NASA. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I think it's interesting because because you say that you didn't have any particular agenda with the Martian. It's just about entertainment. But then I also heard you say uh, you said twenty five years as a software engineer has taught me the importance of backing things up. We need to have a human population somewhere other than Earth. Yes, that's just my. That is that is my opinion um, on on why we should uh, be doing space travel, but. I just, um, there's a difference between like the opinions I hold and then the things I write. So I'm not preaching my opinions in my writing. Um, but yeah, I think that we should have a long-term goal of uh, having a human population somewhere other than Earth. But I also think the best way to accomplish that is through just basic economic activity. In other words, make it so that there's a profit incentive for being somewhere other than Earth. And I think all, uh, I, I could talk about it at length, but we don't have a lot of time left. But um, I think the main, the, the, the only reason we have not already colonized the moon and Mars and stuff is that it's so expensive to get into space. As the price of putting things in low Earth orbit gets pushed down and down by companies like SpaceX, eventually it will reach a point where uh, a common guy like you or me can afford to go into space. And once that happens, then the space travel industry will mirror like the commercial air travel industry. And then there'll be a, a, a supply-demand cycle that just sends people further and further out. And you'll wonder, well, why would they go at all? I don't know. Why did people go to the middle of Alaska and live there? It's what humans do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. One other thing I was wondering about is, given your video game background, if there's any talk about a Martian video game, it seems like it could be a really good way to teach science. Uh, I don't know. Um, there may be talk about that, but at the moment, uh, I am... Uh, there, there's nothing that I've been told about. And uh, I would not own the rights. The video game rights were part of a movie deal. So Fox owns the video game rights. So, yeah, it would be up to them. I'll, I'll have to go ask Fox, I guess. You go ask him. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and I just want to point out, okay, so we had a comment on iTunes from Australia from Wana Bebling. Uh, who gave us a three-star review. He said, haven't actually listened yet. I subscribed expecting to get an Andy Weir slash The Martian episode, was disappointed as there was no such three stars. So I just want to point out to Wana Bebling that we have an Andy Weir slash The Martian episode now, so I hope that, you're, that we've redeemed ourselves somewhat. <laughs> Sorry to hear that. Uh, uh, hopefully you will, you will convert him. 
<laughs> Maybe he'll come back and adjust his review to five stars. Sound that. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. If anyone out there knows one of Bebling in Australia, let him know that we have the yeah, Andy Weir you, stuff. Yeah, you let him know. We got this done. <laughs> okay, so Andy, so yeah, like you said, we're pretty much out of time. You want to just finally tell us uh, what other projects you've got going on or what you're working on now? Yeah, I'm working on my next book now. It's a more traditional sci-fi story. It's got aliens and faster than light travel and stuff like that, although done my own way. I've got my little kernel of bullshit physics that I invented that allows faster than light travel, and I put a lot of work into it to make sure that it doesn't come into conflict with um, real-world physics at all. Um, and But yeah, so you have to invent fake physics to allow FTL, but I really needed FTL for the story. So... Uh, but everything else is uh, strictly strictly accurate and science-based. Oh, and it's tentatively titled Zhek, Z-H-E-K, and it should be out in maybe late 2016. Well, yeah, I first you saw, I mean, yeah, you say it's bullshit physics, but it sounds like you put a lot of work into it. I mean, it sounds like this is really first-rate bullshit physics. Yes, it is. It is the shiniest, most well-sculpted bullshit that I can <laughs> do, but it's still bullshit. I mean. You know, I don't, I don't want to ruin it for anybody here, but uh, you can't actually travel faster than light. <laughs> <laughs> Although I'm sure this will get me a bunch of emails from uh, quantum physicists who will say, like, well, that might not be true. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you, you say tentatively it's called Jack. What what are the chances that it will be called Jack when it is published? High. <laughs> I, I, uh, it, it, pretty high. I think that's what it's going to be called. Although. Um, you know, titling is sort of a, a tricky thing, right? So it may turn out to be like, while, while I'm, when I'm three quarters of the way through it, I might go like, oh, no, I've got a much better title, you know? <laughs> yeah. All right. So unfortunately, we're all out of time. So uh, we've been speaking with Andy Weir. So everyone go check out his novel, The Martian. This new movie, The Martian, hits theaters October 2nd. And keep an eye out for this book that will probably be called Jack. <laughs> And so, uh, Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. And that was our interview. So, big thanks again to Andy Weir for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Mu Yichi Mu, who just gave us our first ever iTunes review in China, and Lapsed Cannibal in the U.S., who writes, We're lucky to have this. Geek's Guide is one of my favorite podcasts a must-listen for any sci-fi enthusiast, and just a great all-around show. The interviews are thoughtful and incisive, the guests fascinating, the panels varied, fun, and informative. I listen even when I don't have any particular interest in the topic, because David almost always finds a way to make it engaging. There's really nothing like this show. Highly recommended. So, big thanks again to Lapsed Cannibal for that great review. And, of course, a special thank you to Piotr Kaplan, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd prefer to make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. 
Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.